Hi, welcome back to Bookish. My guest this week is my dear friend, Emily Mortimer. Em and I uh, were at Oxford, but not quite at the same time. And I left and she and I did a job together soon after and we became great friends. I just adore this woman. She is funny and irreverent and charming and insightful and kind of a force of nature. She really is. You would know her from her beautiful performances in so many films, Lovely and Amazing, the Woody Allen film Match Point, Lars and the Real Girl, Shatter Island, uh, the HBO series The Newsroom, her own brilliant series that she co-created with Dolly Wells called Doll and M, which was just a wonderful HBO show. And she's soon to appear in Mary Poppins. So M and I got together when we were in New York in the basement of her Brooklyn home. Uh, I was clearly, Mercury must have been in retrograde. I was having a really bad run earlier in the week. My laptop had died mid-podcast with Nancy. And then I got all the way to New York to find that the microphone wasn't working. So M and I crouched over the laptop and sipped tequila. And I hope the sound quality isn't too distracting. And I hope that you get to see what a funny, wonderful woman this is and how generous Em is with herself and her stories and the books and the life that she's led. Em, thank you so much for doing my podcast. My pleasure. It's so nice. Let's have a little drink of yes. uh, Oh, do you need more tequila? Uh, tequila. Yeah. Just pour a bit in. There we go. Cheers. <laughs> oh. We're sitting in Em's house and the microphone broke. <laughs> Or something. Anyway, the laptop didn't do its thing. Um, so we're recording this on the laptop, so this isn't the best sound quality. Apologies to everyone. But we'll make really, up for it. We'll make up for it. Innate hilarity. <laughs> and, and hilarity and clarity of diction, exactly. which we'll make up for the shitty mic. Um, we've got um, Em's husband and son upstairs watching... The final of the Indian Wells. Yes, is that what it is. There's some tennis happening, so there may be some ambient noise, which will be fine, <laughs> and and some yelling, and some yelling because it's a real nail biter of a final. <laughs> we just left them out there. Um, Emmy, thank you for doing my podcast. It's so nice to see you. I'm so happy to be doing your podcast. It's an honour to uh, have been invited to do your you. podcast. Although my brain has just ceased functioning, so I can only really answer questions that I'll ask, I'll involve ask me talking about my children because they're the only people whose names I can actually remember. <laughs> that's what you don't have to I remember. can't remember anything you don't have about to remember any of these any books that I've told no. you I love so much. That's fine. It couldn't matter less. Was it easy to pick them or was it hard? It was really easy, weirdly. I thought it was, was going it? to be incredibly hard, but it was it was really easy. They just sort of rattled off, and they seemed to be the only five is a very good number for this. Is it a good task? Yeah. Oh, good. There was there, there, there would never be list, there would never be it? more. Uh, there would never be more than five. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was I was uh, I left a message for Dolly, my 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 other great old friend, who mm. you know. Um, once I I got this uh, assigned this task and saying I don't know that I've even read five books in my life. I must have done. I think you have. I think <laughs> but you I have. definitely I'm sure that at least the the, the 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 sort of deciding factor was that I am at least sure that I have read these you ha- five books. I know that you've read at least two of them <laughs> because two of them you recommended. To me which is really fun <laughs> it was amazing. really really fun when I saw Hero of Our Time on here I was like oh I could have picked that for <laughs> you told me to read that it's so funny looking back 
at at all these books with all this sort of vast number of years that have gone between me and first coming to them and realizing that they arrive into your life at a certain moment and that if you read them for the first time 25 years later you know aged 46 mm. at which I am now it, 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 they would mean completely different things and probably wouldn't mean nearly as much mm. but it's just um it's just they this, mattered in the moment they mattered in the moment mm. yes very much it's funny we talk a lot about this on the podcast it comes up a lot in the podcast the whole thing about rereading and what it is to reread and how sort of either heartbreaking or or sometimes sort of enlivening it is to reread something that mattered to you or to discover like I had this I've bored on about this before but I had it rereading Anna Karenina this summer and I really was sort of blown away by how much I didn't get the first time I'd read it and I last read it 20 or something years ago yeah and and just what stuck out and what mattered and how maybe really unsurprisingly I was all about you know Anna and Vronsky and the sort of passionate love affair and on the reread I was all about Kissy and Levin and the domesticity of marriage <laughs> and how the fuck were they making it work and that was and that was much more sort of I mean not more compelling but it but it was moving because I think that was the stuff I skipped over when I first read it right and it was so it was actually just fun and fun to think about who I was when I did read it that yes. time and well, I had that with that. Hero of. I mean, I, I, I mean, I was just. I wasn't. I didn't manage to reread it, but I was looking at it again and thinking about it again and thinking, God, this character in Hero of Our Time is such an arsehole and such a sort of unreconstructed male. I mean, the definition of a right. sort of unwoke man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and so not any kind of sort of worthwhile hero. Uh, I'm not that. I mean, it was an ironic title to begin with because he's a misanthrop and a sort of you know kind of byronic anti-hero uh to to begin with but i i i definitely had a crush on him for all those reasons peckering and the hero of our time did you did you we jumped in with that one do you want to start with that one why not okay because uh so just so this is now hero of our time is one of em's books which is by mikhail lermontov and it was published in 1839 and um Translated by Nabokov in 1958, which I didn't know. Is that, yes. is that the one that you yes. knew? Or Nabokov at? and his nephew, oh, I really? think, Dmitry Nabokov, translated it. And that's um, that's the sort of now, deemed um, to be the, the, the translation. Now, I know you did Russian at Oxford. Did you read it in the original? I don't think I read that in the original. I, I read a few Chekhov short stories in the original and a lot Bloody of... Bloody hell, it sounds plenty. I, that, I mean, now I can't even believe that I did that. I know, that doesn't that sound impressive? I've read a few so Chekhov impressive. short stories. It really original. does. But what I did read in the original, and I couldn't even begin to tell you, this is so tangential, I'm not allowed to... No, I'm not please sure go. Uh, this, is, this is what the podcast is. Okay, so when, when, I, when I... So I studied Russian at Oxford, Russian and English literature and Russian language too, but... I did eat. So as part of my course, I did a year in Moscow and I was told uh, on strict authority from whoever had gone the year before that I should not do what everybody did, which was to go to the Moscow University, State University and do my course there, that I should find something else to do because it was literally six hours a day reading the dictionary and that it would be boring. And so I managed to get myself somehow through... Somebody my dad had met in Moscow who was the um, curator of the 
Nimirovich Danchenko Museum. And Nimirovich Danchenko was the partner of Stanislavski and oh, the really? unsung hero of the Moscow Arts Theatre. Oh, really? And um, he uh, and she curated his house museum in Moscow. And she got me amazingly a place on a, a drama course at the Moscow Arts Theatre Drama School. And I studied drama at the Moscow Arts Theatre. Yes, for Three a term. Years. Well, no. it was two terms. And I, but the, but study is a very loose term in my case because I didn't study anything. I didn't learn anything. I just fell madly in love with the guy that was our teacher, Dmitry Bruznikin. I can still remember his name. And we did a Lermontov play called Masquerade. Oh, really? And I played the main part I can't remember the name of the main part I can't remember the name I can't remember anything that happened in this play but I, I know that I was in it and I stood on the stage of the Moscow Arts Theatre no way doing a play in Russian doing a Lamontov play in Russian extraordinary and I got the but I just couldn't tell you anything about the experience apart from how much I was in love with Dmitry Brzezniki my teacher mm. And um, we came back to... I finally, Did anyone see it? Did your mum or dad play No, no one see it. No one... No, I mean, no one knows this happened apart from me, so I have to use every opportunity I can to, to show up. No, I, I like it. Anyway, Dmitry Brzeznik and I finally... He had no interest in me whatsoever, but I finally managed to sort of, at the end of my time in Moscow, get him back to my apartment with the other members of the cast of the play that we'd performed, um, and um, of which I have no recollection. And... Um, and we had this dinner party, and I, he took me out onto the balcony. No. Yes, and started talking poetically about the moon. And unfortunately, I got so drunk on vodka because I was so in love with him that I realised I was going to be sick. And as as Dmitry Brzeznikin, <laughs> as Dmitry Brzeznikin sort of pointed at the moon and talked, waxed lyrical, I vomited. <laughs> quietly into my hands behind him and um, <laughs> I couldn't bear to go to the loo because it was just the moment it was occurring but obviously I was slightly encumbered, so encumbered by a sort of with hand, a handful of sick and I just I don't know I can't remember I just sort of said mm, mm, mm. and then finally obviously I had to break the moment and go to the loo <laughs> anyway that was all coming back to me as I was flicking through the hero story. of all time, thinking, God, that's really my takeaway of, um, of having performed Lamentov in the original Russian on the stage at the Moscow Arts Theatre. I love that story. <laughs> that's fucking brilliant. But he, uh, yeah, the, the, the character of Pekarin, it's funny because I, my mom and I had gone to Moscow together when I was before I, I I got into Oxford to to read English and I didn't get in to read Russian. I hadn't even thought of applying to read Russian, but then I'd gone on a year gap year to Russia and I'd done A level Russian and I just fell madly in love with. Why had you done A level? What what started so, the love with the so Russians? So the the, the the love of Russia started with this incredible teacher at St Paul's Girls School where I went to in London, and you know you had to do three A-levels, and I knew I was going to do English, and I knew I was going to do history. Nowadays, people do sort of 10 A-levels, but in our day, we just only had three. to do three. Three, three was plenty. ample. Yep. And um, she, and I had to choose another one, a third, and there was a choice, and I knew I wanted to do some kind of language, and I, I sort of was over French. I studied French for sort of 
20 years and haven't really progressed much further than I did in my first year of studying it. And so, and then I was quite good at Latin, weirdly, but the Latin teacher was a very elderly woman, um, sort of uh, uh, with zero sense of humor um, and a little tight little bun and little round spectacles and I just couldn't bear the thoughts of spending two years being taught anything else by her and there was this incredibly glamorous Russian teacher who looked like a student she was only a few years older than any of us and she'd escaped from Leningrad as it was then known she was called Irina Shumovich and she had escaped from Leningrad in the hold of a ship that this was the rumor that was going around the school when when this girl arrived with bright red stockings and gold teeth most of her teeth were gold and um and lots of curly blonde hair and I thought I really I want her to teach me something yeah and so it was really just getting a crush on this girl this mysterious looking figure that wafted around the school Uh, and so she taught me Russian me and five other girls who'd been smitten by this this uh this arena and and we learned Russian from nothing to A level in two years. And she was the one that introduced me to Lermontov. Oh really? And introduced me to lots of kind of not necessarily on the syllabus, which was Chekhov and Tolstoy, of who, I mean of whom both of whom I'm just in, just in completely sort of in, in enamored, obviously, but mm. there were all sorts of cool you know, like Leskov uh, who was another contemporary of Chekhov? She introduced us to, um, who wrote amazing short stories. Sam Yatin, who was kind of a, you know, wrote these sort of sci-fi type things, sort of oh, wow. H.G. Wells type I've never stuff. Heard of him. He great. was amazing. Mm. And then um, and Bulgakov mm-hmm. and stuff that wasn't on our syllabus. And then she would take us to these amazing kind of poetry readings and weird sort of. Well, they felt like, like very underground events to us at the time. Sure, we were sixteen-year-old girls, but had never really been out. But um, but yes, yeah, so there was that place called the ICA on the Mall. You know that, yeah, that sure. uh, gallery. And this one time, Irina Shimovich took her five Russianists um, from St Paul's Girls School uh, to um, <laughs> to see seven <laughs> Moscow poets um, wow. and uh, and hear them read their poetry. And it was way before the, well, it wasn't way before, it was, I guess the Berlin Wall came down in 8990, and we were in, it was probably 87. Wow. And um, so these, it was a big deal for these poets to be allowed out. To be there, yeah. And we went, and we heard them, we didn't understand a word, obviously, of anything they were saying. (laughs) What, was it it slam poetry, was it? No, it was very um, traditional, kind of, but, but, but they were sort of, in a way, dissident poets, but, mm-hmm. you know, not so dissident that they were kind of banned in their own country, mm-hmm. but they were, you know, there was a, there was a, uh, there was, there was, they were, they were rock and roll in their, their way. They sure. all had moustaches and most of them had beards. And um, in those days, that wasn't trendy at all. And, right. and we were deeply sort of concerned by all these moustaches <laughs> and beards. So much hair. There was so much hair. <laughs> now they'd be so you'd any, walk into any Brooklyn history and totally. you'd see everybody would look yeah. like these Russian poets. But but in those days they were quite a sight. And we went to see them perform at the ICA and then we all went to a party and it was probably my first proper I mean, it was definitely one of the first times I'd sort of been out at a party with kind of grown up people sure. and we got drunk and drank lots of vodka. And were you sick in your hands? I wasn't sick in my hands, <laughs> but I got, I did get a number of their telephone numbers in my book. 
And um, and they said, if ever you're in Moscow, you must look us up, these poets. Anyway, then cut to my gap year, and I, I went back to Moscow, and after, I mean, I couldn't speak any Russian when I first got there, but the three about three months later, I called the first number, not knowing who it was. And this voice picked up the phone, Dennis, Dennis Novikov, his name was, and Dennis uh, invited me over to his flat on the outskirts of Moscow, and I went on a little subway on my 17-year-old self, took the subway to the very furthest point on the subway map on in Moscow and there was Dennis and I thought Dennis was the other Russian poet but I thought was much ha- more handsome <laughs> and Dennis thought oh, I was Shami my my Sikh Indian oh, friend my little, he's kept saying where's your little Indian friend I said I'm so, so, so sorry. sorry she didn't come but anyway um <laughs> did you put up with each other's disappointment yes and I he he so much so that he became my boyfriend and he was my first no. great love of my life Dennis no. Novikov yes and I, apparently he puts it down to the fact that I came with quite a bad hangover. Uh, hangovers and drinking is <laughs> featuring large. Heavily, I love it. It's anyway, good. he said, uh, apparently he asked me in Russian uh, how I was doing. And I apparently said in a very complicated sort of way, from a, a physical which means from a physical point of view, not very good. <laughs> I was trying to say I had a hangover, but I didn't know the words. That's so a brilliant roundabout way of getting to it. It's quite oh, impressive. It's inspired. It's also very impressive that you just pulled that out. I know. I That's it, pretty good. That was really good. From a physical point of view, not very good. Anyway, that charmed Dennis, the poet, and all he could say to me in English at that point was, "Hello, my name is Tony Dakota. I am an and I am an astronaut from Minnesota." No way. And I was just like okay I'm really in love with you immediately and then um he had a rather sort of long-suffering poetess girlfriend called Julia who cooked lots of very disgusting food and um and Julia got and I got I had to get I had to yes I had to make sure that Julia was booted but I mean that was I don't know how that quite happened but it did and and how long were you together I was with Dennis for maybe Probably, I was definitely still with him when I started at university, really? you know, a year later. He was in, he was lodged in my room upside, uh, mm. in, in Lincoln College. And I, I kept going, instead of going to Freshers something, Freshers. You'd go upstairs and I'd go upstairs refresh, and refresh Dennis. <laughs> Dennis was a big fan of Lermontoff's. And, Is um, he who introduced, no, because you said it was no, your teacher. No, funnily enough, it wasn't. It was all these people. It was this teacher, but it was also my mother, weirdly. My mum, my dad is responsible for one of the other books um, on this list, two of the other books on this list, and was responsible for influencing me in so many ways. But my mum... And I had gone to Moscow even before that, which is where my first initial inklings of excitement about Mm. Russia had begun. And we'd gone on some weird sort of package tour and just um, the two of you just the two of us mm. with a sort of but you know, those days you couldn't just go on a holiday you had to go with a group of people and sure there was another couple from Liverpool and a car mechanic and who I kissed in the lift at the hotel <laughs> I know I can just all of it sounds making me sound so sort of romantic is rom- the answer well, no, the only rom- word no not romantic no yes no, it but is. sort of slightly sort of dicey no I, I don't not know. dicey just romantic anyway I um I really I had until my experience of Russia, I really had had very little experience of life. I'd done a lot of sort of 
romanticizing about what life would be when I started living it. But I hadn't, I was very deeply shy, deeply sort of terrified of going out, terrified mm. of parties, terrified of social life. Mm. But I'd gone to Moscow with my mum and had this kind of strange time and kissed this car mechanic in the lift. <laughs> And and my mom had been reading A Hero of Our Time on this trip. And I hadn't read it because my mom was reading it. I thought, I can't be that good. But she had been totally taken by this book. And she kept saying how rock and roll Peckerin was, the Mm. main character in A Hero of My Time. And my mom is quite a rock and roll character. She really is. And my mom... So to say that. For mom to say that... Carries some weight. It does. Yeah. And she... The only other person that she's really sort of she's really made me kind of the only other well not I was about to say fictional person but it is kind of a similarly fictional although he's a real person but is Mick Jagger my mum was in love with madly in love with Mick Jagger mm. uh, as a young and old woman and I was brought up to uh, revere him to revere him yeah. and, to, and that song Under My Thumb by the Rolling Stones even though it's the most awful song. Again, mm. now I listen to it, it's that, I mean, the, the sort of hashtag times up. not really Mick, me too. Mick yeah. Jagger. Yeah. Um, but I would listen to that. My mum kept saying how, how great this song was, and it, and and I would listen to this song, you know, and under, under my thumb is a, whatever, a Siamese cat of a girl, and it's all about just subduing <laughs> <laughs> this, this woman and um, and making her his slave, basically. And, um, and, and it seems to have absolutely zero or very little emotion to it. And be completely sort of full of cynicism and cruelty. Mm. Anyway, this to, this kind of I don't know thing was was pointed out to me by my mother as being the kind of man that was really the ultimate mm. in sex appeal, right? And someone that wanted to <laughs> just sort of conquer women cruelly and leave them heartbroken and dejected was someone to be very much in love to with. To be valued. Yeah, someone to be really God, valued. Isn't it lucky you ended up with your lovely, delightful husband, yes, Alessandro, because it really, against all fucking odds, Em. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. How did that happen? I don't know. It well, speaks it, to huge mental health. It's Well, no, it doesn't. It speaks to having had real, really bad run-ins with a lot of really disaster ones beforehand that, yeah. with, that my mother would have approved of although my mother completely approves of Alessandro and, and, and luckily has has grown up too as the years have gone by but um, but anyway yeah Mick Jagger and Peckerin were like her all time pin ups yeah it's impeccable taste <laughs> so, I'm going to give that yeah that's a high tone but it took it took me until my my Irina Shimovich my Russian teacher and then Dennis the Russian poet to actually get me to read the book and it is a really fucking great book mm. I don't know whether I'm going to say that on you, you can say anything you like on this podcast um, you funnily enough told the reason I was so thrilled to see it on there was because well there were two there were two books on here that I, I was just smiled in recognition and thought I love M because I could have picked these for you <laughs> and Here of Our Time is one of them because when we were in Australia a million years ago M and I did a terrible, wonderful, <laughs> terrible uh, movie for TV called Noah's Ark, which was about exactly that. And we played Noah's daughters to John Voight's Noah. <laughs> anyway, during that time, I read War and Peace, improbably, 
um, I think to counterbalance just the sheer shite that we were actually filming. <laughs> and you told me to read A Hero of Our Time. Really? So I distinctly remember it. And I couldn't find it in Australia. We were in Melbourne. And so I bought it when I got back. And so I have such a vivid memory of getting back and all of us feeling, or I'll speak for myself, feeling desperately adrift because we'd been gone for quite a long time. Yes, months. And yes, and we'd only all had each other to sort of rely on. And we'd all got so close and tight and hung out and had adventures on the Great Barrier Reef. And coming back and just missing you and Keiki so badly, our other great friend Johnny Cake. And and we were all sort of minutes away from each other in London, but going off to read A Hero of Our Time. And I, so I associate it completely with you. Wow. Um, so I agree. I think he's a badass. And I hadn't thought about it until I saw you saw it on your list. And... I just loved it. It was really fun to see it. Yeah. Let's do your next one. We could... Will you tell me what's next? I saw Mr. Tootly Too, which I'm guessing is one that... Mr. Tootly Oo. Tootly Oo. Okay. Okay, so this is Mr. Tootly Oo. I've got it here because it's incredible. You can't find Mr. Tootly Oo. If you... Mr. Tootly Oo, let me tell you, was published in 1925 and was written by Bernard and Eleanor Darwin. Who were they? Bernard was um, Charles Darwin's grandson. Are you serious? Mm. I didn't know that. And his wife, Eleanor, illustrated it. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh my God, Nani, that's such an amazing thing. Isn't that fun? And he, Bernard, was um, an expert on Dickens. Are you serious? Yeah, wrote the foreword to a bunch of Dickens things when they were released. And uh, was also a professional golfer. Do you want to know anything else about him? No, there you are. The the golfing, I'm very surprised about because everything else about Bernard. Okay, you've got him. Apart from anyone that is into golfing, I'm immediately suspicious of him. I know. Em's got the book here, and the smell is so beautiful of these little yellowed pages. So, this is something your dad read to you, and your dad had read to him? Yes, I mean, now you're saying that it was written in 1925, so my dad was a little boy when this book. My dad is dead, sadly, but he uh, was born in. 1923 Mm. and this book was read to him by his parents and then he read it to I I'm assuming all his children but it was always in the house in Turville Heath where I grew up um, and where my dad grew up and all of his children will have come at one point in time in their lives even the ones that weren't actually brought up there with because his his parents were there and they came to visit all the time and and this book is something that that we all have in common but nobody else has in common because really? nobody nobody's ever heard never of it had, no i'd never heard of it anyway it's just so magical and it just reminds me madly of my dad and it's so funny and i read it to may will you read me just a little bit yes and okay i'll read it to you it's all in it's in rhyming Couplets, you know, rhyming verse. Hang on. Wait. You don't have to read the whole thing. Just I'm a just bit. Gonna read read the whichever beginning. bit you like. Yeah. Now, listen while I tell to you the tale of Mr. Tootly Oo, a sailor, jovial and brave, who sailed upon the ocean wave. One day, when in the southern seas he danced a hornpipe at his ease, he felt a most unpleasant shock. The ship had run upon a rock. Now, Tootly Oo could never tell exactly how it all befell. He'd scratch his head and try to think when people asked him, Did you sink? Or pray, what happened to the crew? But this, in fact, was all he knew. On coming to himself, he found that after all, he was not drowned and he meets a cocky ollie bird I just have to tell you about the cocky ollie bird and then we'll stop yeah please do the ship was gone and there he sat quite safe and jolly in his hat the sea was calm the sun was high he saw it shining in the sky and close at hand upon my word he found a cocky ollie bird the hat sailed on the bird pursued and stared and stared I call it rude until they reached what Mr T thought was an island in the sea no educated child could fail to see it really was a 
whale. Oh, my children would love it. Anyway, this book goes on and on and on. And he has all sorts of adventures. And he gets... um, he puts his 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 uh, match from his pipe down the whale's spout, and the whale spouts a big plume of water in the air. And then he develops a relationship with this cocky ollie bird and her six cocky ollie chicks. And then he gets a, a magic spell put on him by a gnome, and he gets floats up to get so fat that he gets so fat that he gets sort of full of air and floats up into the sky. But anyway, he finally comes back down, and the gnome transforms the cocky ollie bird into a beautiful lady in a crinoline. In a pink crinoline. In a pink oh, crinoline. Oh, would be all over this. The loveliest lady ever seen stood blushing in a crinoline. Poor Mrs. C exclaimed, Oh, Lord, my cocky ollie ancestor would really have a dreadful shock if she could see me in this frock. <laughs> my blessed chicks will never know I am the ma that loved them so, and every day their tails did comb. Oh, this damned interfering gnome. But then, of course, <laughs> the gnome says, Please try, the gnome replied, to calm your quite unnecessary qualm. All six without unpleasant noise. I'll turn at once to girls and boys. And suddenly, three precious chicks were little boys with hoops and sticks Lots and collars white of gro- and coats of green. Their hair was brushed, their hands were clean, august. Justice, Marma, Duke, and James. Be sure you don't forget their names. And then, <laughs> then here is the other three were perfect ducks in muslin ground, gowns with frilly tucks. Their hats were blue and green and pink. Extremely pretty, don't you think? There's Araminta with her doll, and Susan's got a parasol. Belinda has a faithful hound that stands beside her on the ground. Anyway, it's gorgeous. They all end up being very, very happy together. Mr. Tilly and these, this cocky ollie bird did, and these cocky ollie chicks. Did you read it to Sam? And me. Yes, and they both are... And there was... A, I mean, there's terrible moments. It's so weird because there's this this book never leaves the house. But mm-hmm. I, I, I get into... I, there's nothing that gets puts me in a greater panic than the thought that I might have lost Mr. Tootie. Really? And I was looking for it this morning, thinking... Where is it gone? Where is it gone? Yeah. And I always, in my head, I go through all the sort of people that will have definitely stolen it. <laughs> <laughs> Not that anybody would have any interest in it, but I... It's just, valuable. I tell it's, you, it's valuable. It's also... Because that looks like a first edition. So you look it up online, you'll see. Not that you're planning to sell it. But they are, they're, they're, they're listed as valuable books, these lovely ones. I can't completely believe out of print. that this is Charles Darwin's grandson. Grandson. Yeah. And what does he have to do with tickets? With Dickens, he was an expert on Dickens. He was an expert on Dickens. So when the sort of first definitive edition of Dickens, not first, but sort of one of them, he wrote the foreword for Pickwick Papers and God, something else. He was the sort of yeah, he was the he was considered a leading expert on Dickens in his time. That's so incredible. Yeah, I've got to read his foreword to the yeah. To the Pickwick it was fun. Papers. It was so sweet. But that was lovely. So did your dad read you that? Or so your my dad read it to me. It was my dad's. You know, I can hear my dad's voice reading it to mm. me, and there's something about—I don't quite know what it is—but there's something about the tone of it that, which is so interesting, this connection to Dickens, because my dad was this huge Dickens fan, and is that where Great because Great Expectations is your third book? Yes, so Great Expectations is definitely there's these these are oh, that is just resonant with memories of my dad, and I can just hear his voice in Great Expectations, but I love reading this to my kids because it just there's something about the humor and the kind of twinkle in the eye of it Mm. that reminds me so much of my dad and connects me to home and Mm. to sort of Englishness in a way that's that that not many things really do in that way and they can get it they just Mm. get it they Mm. love it and they just 
just they just get it somehow. Yeah, it's it's a, lovely. It's really nice, isn't it? It's funny how books are such a pipeline in that way. I yeah, think. they really are. I get that with a few that I read to mine, and I think Burglar Bill is one that I made my children read, and I, I, you know, it's an out of print here, and you, it's, an, it's just such an English English book, and. I don't think Americans even use the phrase burglar. You know, they're thieves or yeah. whatever. And I just, I feel exactly the same sense of sort of warm nostalgia and comfort. It's like a cup of tea or something. Yes, yes. And there's even, I mean, I think there are so, uh, such amazing um, literature for children in America. Like, mm. the, are your kids into William Steig? Not yet, no. They're so brilliant. They're just so brilliant. And they have... Incred- like Pearl and the Amazing Bone and Sylvester and the Magic Pebble. Oh, Sylvester and Magic Pebble. We love that one. I've got That's to give you wonderful. Pearl and the Amazing I'm going to get, I'll bring it. Oh, so it's just okay. so great. And they, he's got such a feeling for language and humour and everything. But there's there's something um, even the, 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 the strain to me of American children's literature and American children's sort of television as well it's all about sort of life lessons mm. and te- learning moments whatever they call it what do they call it um, yeah, teachable, te- teachable moments, moments yes, yes. yes and which is great because of course we need sure. we desperately need as much teachable teaching as we can get but but the the difference is that English ones or British ones or whatever they're, they're never they don't set out to do that at all they just really set out to make you laugh yeah. and well they're also absurd in a way I they're think. absurd they're much more absurd yeah. there's no kind of rhyme or reason to right. it it's just all silly or funny or... we were talking the other day about straw peter and did you read that? No. Did you have that read to you? It, 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 it's sort of German and it was European. It was just dark and macabre and gothic. And it was about a boy who refused to cut his nails. So the front cover is this boy with sort of enormous long talons and frizzy yellow hair because he wouldn't have it cut. And there are all these little fables that gathered in this book, Straw Peter. And one of them is about Augustus, who would the, um, who sucked his thumb until his parents came and cut his thumb. Oh and my the god! And came and cut the fucking thumbs off him so that he couldn't. Little little not Augustus, little something sucker thumb. And it was just I remember just being out. I didn't even I did I wasn't a thumb sucker, but I certainly wasn't a fucking thumb sucker after reading that dark shit. So I'm with you. I think the Brits have a good corner on there absurd funny yeah undermining yeah sort of slightly digging at authority but not in not too corruptive yeah, a way it's just, whereas the the, the 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 certainly the eastern european side of things is that i'm just glad i wasn't brought up in germany yes, is what i'm trying to say yes. i'm glad i wasn't given a diet of for grimm's fairy tales yes. and straw peter because yes. that would have been really shocking yes worrying um <laughs> let's talk about your next book great expectations yes which was published in 1861 yes and did your dad read that out loud to you i'm trying to think if he actually read great expectations out loud to me because he definitely read dickens out loud he did read he? a christmas carol out to, loud to me he read a lot of pg Woodhouse out, out loud oh, to wonderful. me wonderful and your dad's voice. I know. So great. And he read a lot of Sherlock Holmes of, of you know, Conan Doyle, whatever, mm. out loud to me. But I don't think he read Great Expectations out loud to me. I, in fact, I tried reading Great Expectations out loud to Sam about two years ago, and it was a disaster. <laughs> I just got How absolutely... old were you when you read it? I was about 14 or 15, and I remember where I was. when I, I remember reading it in Italy, where we would go every summer with my mum and dad. And I was... I can remember getting to Magwitch, dying by the side of the swimming pool. This mm. sounds like such a sort of, I'm um, just, don't 
sorry, that I was lounging by a swimming pool age 14 or 15 in Italy when, when, but as a teenager. Why? But, How lovely. I know, but just so, so, I mean, sort of sick-making really. But but it, but it but I I just remember lying there and and um, reading that bit and just crying, crying, crying really? and being really massively affected by it. Had, and you, had you cried in a book before? Maybe, but I can't remember crying mm-hmm. in a book before. I definitely remember that being the first mm. time I really got sad yeah. in a book. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And it's funny, it reminded me of this other, this other moment in a book that I always remember, which is, uh, which really affected me and maybe made me cry, I can't remember, but, but um, I read it when I was older, War and Peace, and when Nikolai comes to Count Rostov and says that he's basically has to admit that he's gambled away the fa- a lot of the family fortune. He's gambled away just so much money. Mm-hmm. And, and he's been this kind of arrogant little prick of a son for a while. He's such a sweet boy, but he's kind of gone off the rails. He's got in with a bad lot, and mm-hmm. he's sort of, you know, kept his distance from his parents. And this pa- the parents are so lovely. And this amazing scene where he... It starts off with him being, like, really surly and basically saying, yeah, you know, I've got... I've, yeah, sorry, I've lost mm. all this money in this kind of incredibly entitled sort mm. of adolescent way. And then by the end of the scene, he's just sobbing, sobbing. and begging forgiveness. And the father's so kind and sweet and understanding about it. He just starts feeling just more and more guilty and mm. awful. And I just remember being really affected by that. And in a funny way, that strain of great expectations is what really affected me, weirdly. It's the similar thing of just the sort of the arrogance of Pip and the kind of, he's Mm. so on the make and he's so desperate to prove himself and be a sort of gentleman, whatever that means, but like a gentleman, not just, I mean, you know, I guess the sort of the very simplistic way of describing the book is that, that he sets out to be a gentleman in the kind of, he wants all the trappings of what it is to be a gentleman. He wants to be a sort of accepted, revered, member of society he wants to be worthy of Estella and to right. be somebody who has money in the position and 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 turn his back on his kind of humble inauspicious roots and and then in the course of things he learns what it is to be a true gentleman which mm-hmm. is, is nothing to do with any of those things and he discovers he's humbled by the discovery that this criminal is in, that he was sort of terrified Absolutely. by and disgusted by as as a child and who was the kind of scourge of his childhood imaginings and terror of his childhood who hung him upside down and shaped him in this grave church graveyard when he was a little boy and just imprinted himself in this terrifying way on on his consciousness is is in fact his his benefactor Mm. and has been looking out for him all these years Mm. and is also in fact the father of the woman that he's madly in love with who he thinks of as this sort of unattainable uh and it's just that moment of him being with this sort of dying father figure who who and and, and having to kind of having to face who he really is mm-hmm. and be humbled by his life mm-hmm. um and it's funny that that really affected me when i was young because i feel like 
I mean, when I was thinking about it again today, just knowing that you were coming mm. and, and flicking through it and just, uh, that was one I was thinking, I mean, Pecorin maybe I will leave for a few years. I mean, I'd, I'd love right. to revisit Pecorin right. at some point, but I really would love to read Great Expectations yeah. again now. Just, But it's so funny that you wouldn't have thought for a sort of teenage child that kind of moment of sort of reckoning of uh, uh, would 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 be uh, well, so affecting i but. disagree i i think first of all you were not any teenage child for a start and given your background and things but i also think there's something about because great expectations has come up before i think i was trying to rack my brains and remember which other guest there's been very few repetitions so it's really interesting when, they when do there come. is one yeah because yeah. we've done i've done 20 odd of these now so it's sort of fun to start seeing what emerges and Dickens does crop up, and I think it was Great Expectations that did. But I was thinking about the fact that Great Expectations and David Copperfield are the only two that are written in the first person. Yeah. Everything else is third-person yeah. narrative with him. And I think as a child, that's enormous child, whatever, adolescence. Yes, yes. There's something about the immediacy of that. Yes. And that you trace these, both these people, because for me, mine would be David Copperfield. Yes. I mean, just yes. absolutely, although I love Great Expectations too. But there's something about this immediacy of being on this journey yes. with them from childhood yes. into adulthood. Yes. And that both are you know, allegedly sort of memoirs of his too. And there's so much of him, I gather, in, yes. in them both. Yes. And that you, as a child, I think you you pick up on that and you feel on that and you're so keen to identify, you're so ready to identify, you're so all about your peers and what are they doing? And suddenly you're, here you are presented with this, with this peer, essentially, yes. who even though the time is obviously completely different and other is presenting these very recognisable things of uh, yearning and early ambition and seeking after the wrong thing and then being having to turn and discover what the right thing actually is. Yes. It's their, their sort of grown-up knights or something. Do you yes. know what I mean? They're like, they're not, they're not dissimilar. There's a continuum between them and the fairy stories and the myths that we've grown up yes. with, I think, yes. in a way. They're just... Yes. Well, definitely that, that sort of... And also that sort of discovering of who you are. I mean, I guess that's what's happening when you're an adolescent. Yeah. You're discovering who you are. And these books are real... The plots are all about identity and, yeah. and working out who, what your provenance is yeah. and what that means about who you really are right, and, exactly. and that's that's definitely something that as an adolescent you're grappling with majorly yeah. instead of hating your parents on the one hand right. and then feeling kind of slightly in love panicked with them on without the other them. Yeah. and panicked on the other but We've, also the sort of what I really feel is incredible about Dickens is that and funnily enough it is in it is in Mr. Toodley U too, and it is it is in the Hero of Our Time too. This, but this that sort of mystery. There's sort of um, there's a sort of surreal quality, to, absurd quality mm-hmm. to the writing that is right. um, that is very mysterious, and you can't quite put your finger on. And, and is to me, that's what the magic of a good book is: is something that's on the one hand really brilliant storytelling which keeps you wanting to read and and I mean he's a brilliant storyteller and his plots are kind of ridiculous on the one hand but they really are you I mean and the fact that they were written in 
<clears throat> in whatever you call, you know, in sort of serialized, serialized yeah. form, exactly. So they're, they, they're, they're cliffhanger after cliffhanger after cliffhanger and coincidence after coincidence after coincidence. But it is brilliant storytelling nonetheless and, and sort of edge of your seat stuff. And then there's all the kind of social conscience stuff, which I'm really into too. Mm. But but it's, it's kind of conservative morality in a way or tr- conventional morality mm-hmm. in a way. But then there's this kind of surreal absurdism that's going alongside that, yeah. which kind of almost undercuts it. Yeah. And the way that he describes, like, even the the little uh, tombs of or the little graves of all the brothers and sisters at the very beginning in that graveyard scene, these little mm. lozenges. And I can remember him. And then pigs trotters in window you know, in, in shop windows and and the world that he creates is sort of mad yeah. and, and this child's view on the world where you see it and it's... I can remember him walking along with the... the oh, I forget the name of it. Jaggers, the name of the lawyer. The, the, lawyer, the, the yeah. terrifying lawyer. And mm. all he can see is the stubble, <clears throat> the little sort of oh, dots yeah. of... Brilliant. Of the little black yeah. dots of stubble on the man's yeah. face. And you're just like, God, that's such an amazing image. Completely. And, there's, and would be mesmerizing. Yes, yeah. yeah. And the, yeah. You, I think that, that that really speaks to you when you're young. That's yeah. just sort of, and that's why it's timeless as well, because yeah. it's so kind of crazy and idiosyncratic and, and, and his view on the world is, 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 you know, as I said, on the one hand, there is this kind of conventional moralizing that's... Fit. But isn't that interesting? Because I feel like that's where, you know, we talk, I talked about this with Chris White in his interview, that... To a degree, for those of us that weren't brought up, as I don't think you were, with religion, with any organized religion in our in our lives, that so much of our morality comes from our books, that, that to, in a way, yeah. that, that literature, I mean, obviously one's parents, but, but that literature forms for so much or replaces religion for so many of us. He talked about uh, the Greek, I forget which anthology, but the Greek gods as one of his uh, mythology and was saying that he absolutely uncomplicatedly like attributes his sense of right and wrong to that anthology. Really? Yeah. So I was like, so do you have 15 wives? I know, exactly. Sort of multiple Greek children? Gods, exactly. A bit of a sort of daze, hazy a little uh, handle on right. I, I agree. <laughs> I, but I thought it was sort of brilliant and shape-shifting. <clears throat> but, um, but yeah, anyway, it was sort of, it was interesting to think about like what, or you, what you're saying, that yes. how much of our sense of right and wrong we, you know, acquire or, or acquire without even knowing it in the sort of osmosis way by by reading these people and learning you know what a gentleman is i, I yes. know i know ex- i have a, a sort of physical sense of the end of great expectations yes. for what that moment yes is. so it's it's really lovely yes because uh, i do think that with great i mean do i do i think this with, with all great writers but maybe the great writers that i love that <clears throat> you feel that they i mean not dostoevsky probably but like with Tolstoy, certainly with with Dickens too, that you just feel that they are basically sort of forgiving of yeah okay so 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 Dickens has a very kind of <clears throat> you know he idealizes these sort of women these sort of angels of hearth and home these kind of dom- domestic sort mm-hmm. of goddesses mm-hmm. basically and and he's got very sort of you know, in a way, there's sort of that Hollywood kind of uh, moralizing that goes on where mm. the sort of the people at the bottom of the 
Titanic are all good and the yeah. people at the top are, are you know, all horrible yeah. rich yeah. people and um and there's a lot there's a lot of that in Dickens but at the same time I just feel like there's a kind of a really deep seated sense of the kind of frailty of humanity and of forgiveness basically mm. of it and you feel you some you feel sort of forgiven reading no, great expectations but I, I agree and I think you're right I think that is what all the great ones has is this enormous compassion yes. it's what Chekhov had it's yes. what Henry James had it's, yes. what, it's what the greats have is this yes. ability to sort of put their arms around all of it and go you too yes you too yes you know, exactly and, and let me try and get to the bottom of you yes I think it's yes and, and that when with Pip but certainly and David Copperfield you're right they were him in a way yeah. and so he was it was <clears throat> grappling with all sorts of stuff that, that I gather was, I read this um, thing that so he owned the journal which I didn't realise the journal that it uh, Great Expectations was serialised in was called All the Year Round and it was going under and the story that he was serial was on the front cover was not selling in the same way so he wrote Great Expectations to save the journal really yeah I mean he was literally writing for his life my god and so and, and he wrote it and he wrote it in it was published December 1860 and serialised until August of 1861 so that's six seven months of just writing non-stop and creating work that good under that kind of fucking yeah, pressure which yeah. is just amazing as his own life was falling apart because I did not know this but he just separated he love with them. from his wife of 22 yeah. years and the mother of his 10 children yeah. and to be with this much Ellen, younger actress Ellen what's her name Ellen Turnan or Ellen, Ellen, Ter- Ellen Ter- uh, Ter- Ter- Turnan something like that yeah. Ellen Turnan because they wonder if Estella is based on her oh really yeah that she was cold and withholding until she finally sort of gave in and oh, yeah. there's sort of theories that Ellen Turnan is some sort of an anagram of Estella oh my um, god how amazing yeah, so yeah. That's god that's that fascinating well um, I did know that his I mean I, I I mean I remember my dad telling me when uh, when he was sort of introducing me to Dickens that his you know the biggest marking moment of Dickens's life was his father going into the debtors prison yeah. and and the sort of ignominy and misery that that brought upon them mm. all and how that was so writing was forever writing for his life in a way right. it was forever just staving that off he's saving that off and wanting to get dignity and status mm. and money and redeem that. and and redeem yeah. that but there was always that there there was always that kind of feeling of you know, and that's what's so brilliant that's the sort of magwitch and totally. relationship you know yeah. the sort of feeling of of you know, we're however hard you try to get away from it, we're all, you know, we, we're all base creatures, really, mm. and 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 in the baseness there is beauty and mm. and, and love and love. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about your next book, Ons and Rebels, which is oh, yes. Jessica Mitford, nineteen sixty. <laughs> so Ons and Rebels, I just love this book, and I've always loved it. But um, when did you read it? Do you remember? I can remember reading it in the bath in Turville Heath, which is my mum and dad's house, which is the same house that Mr. Tootlew was in all those years. But um, I can't think how old I would have been, but probably in my 20s. So Jessica Mitford is one of these six Mitford sisters, Mm -hmm. and she was the communist. There were six girls that were brought up by their eccentric... Uh, you know, sort of posh parents. posh parents in England, in the English, in Oxfordshire in the 1920s and 30s. Um, Jessica was young and um, she was one of the, the youngest of the six, but her sisters included 
And there was a brother. The sisters included Nancy Mitford, who wrote Ons and Rebels, and oh, sorry, The Pursuit of Love and Love in a Cold Climate, Don't Tell Alfred, and all these things, and was a great friend of Evelyn Waugh. And she was one of the oldest. Yeah. And she was a very, uh, she was very left-wing uh, Nancy, but she, she was a sort of bright young thing and a kind of mm, sort of e-seat sort of type that was friends with all these sort of posh people. And, um, and then there was... Unity Mitford, who had an affair with Hitler, or we don't know whether he, she had an affair with Hitler, but she was certainly very in with yeah. Hitler, yeah, and ended up shooting herself in the head at the end of the war because she felt Did she? so uh, conflicted about the fact that she <laughs> on the wrong side of history. On the wrong side of history, yeah. she survived, but as God. a sort of um, um, and then their other sister was Diana Mitford Sash Mosley, who was married, also very friendly with Hitler, and married to Oswald Mosley, who was the leader of the fascist party in England. And they spent quite a lot of the war in prison. Mm. And then uh, there was the Duchess of Devonshire, Debo Mitford, who had always wanted to marry a duke and did and became the Duchess of Devonshire <laughs> and raised lots of chickens and um, mistress of the most beautiful house in England exactly and then and uh, she was the youngest I think and but Decca was like the second or third youngest Jessica and she was a famous communist you know the beginning of the book and and and, and Jessica married Esmond Romilly, who was Churchill's nephew mm. and who was a very sort of active communist and went off and sort of much to the sort of consternation, consternation of his family, um, went off to fight in the Spanish Civil War um, to fight Franco. And uh, Jessica had always been in love with him um, from reading about him as a child because his exploits were always on the front page of the Daily Mail. And um, and she decided that she wanted to become a communist too because she just got this massive crush on him and ended up meeting him at a dinner party and said, I want to run away and fight in Spain and he said well if you're free in two weeks time I'll take you and so no, she, she that's how they went that's how they went oh, well I didn't know that. and they got married and Churchill sent a warship to bring them home oh that's right <laughs> and to Nancy, sort of airlift them out of yes them. yes and they she refused to get on it they tried to Nancy Mitford came on this warship oh, I don't think Nancy Mitford was on the warship but Nancy Mitford was sort of stationed in France with her husband but Jessica was tried they tried to lure her onto this ship with promises of a delicious roast chicken and amazing <laughs> Sunday lunch I would have had me I would have had me uh, totally I have gone in a heartbeat but Esmond Romilly said you must they will offer you lunch and you have to not get on because it's a trap and so she said she felt so cross but she didn't get on and, and sat on a bench and waited Franco or a roast chicken exactly um, so she stayed behind but anyway they, that was a huge scandal and she writes about it in this book and it's just so funny and charming and I don't know I mean why was it formative do you know I think it was just again that was given to me by my dad mm-hmm. and it was something about the anarchic mm. way of talking about these quite big things, like mm. sort of, you know, whether to be a communist or a fascist in the mm. in between the wars at mm. that time, like that's huge. Mm. And she does it, and she was definitely on the right side of history, and she was really cool. Of all the sisters, she was the coolest. Sure. They were all really cool. Mm. I mean, they were all fascinating mm. and crazy and unique yeah. and unique and um I mean that the, the, they're so funny and charming. These tales in this in this book, um, 
of you know how the mother the mother trying to get them desperately trying to wrangle these six crazy women and and trying to get them to sit down and and write out how they would um, economize for a household <laughs> on five hundred pounds a year. <laughs> <laughs> and Nancy, so apparently every time, Nancy would write £499 flowers. Oh, so <laughs> and then the story about they, they had a goose, that a pet goose or something, and they they, want, they didn't have anything to eat for Christmas lunch in the war, and so they decided they had to kill this goose. And they, they killed the goose, and then they plucked it and put it in the fridge, and then they opened the fridge or the cold lard or whatever on Christmas morning to cook it, and the goose sprang out no. and walked around the kitchen. No. Plucked. Plucked. No. And they felt so guilty no. about this goose that they ended up knitting it a cardigan <laughs> and it spent the rest of the war wondering around. <laughs> anyway. Brilliant. I, I just, brilliant. I think it was the talk about lack of self-pity, mm. lack of censoriousness, mm. lack of judgments, mm. lack of, I mean, she's very outspoken about her politics and went off, you know, she went off to America with, with Romilly um, and then he came back to fight in the war and immediately got killed. They were only together for three or four years mm. and it's incredibly romantic the way she was obviously just madly in love with him and these three or four years together were just sort of just the best in her life. Mm. Um, but, uh, and so she describes their meetings with, with various American people in, in, in Washington and New York. And it's also open-minded. That's the other thing. Just, uh, unjudgmental, uncensorious, open-minded, funny, mm. no self-pity. Um, just how you want to be about life, really. I think. That- I just want to say those are all adjectives that I would use about you. Oh my god, that's I really so would. Nice. I really would, Em. It's so interesting listening to you talk about it because that was where I because I, I was when I read it, when I saw this on your list, I was thinking, you know, all of these were all and not to be expected. They would I don't mean that in any sort of predictable way. I just meant I looked at your books and I just smiled in recognition. <laughs> and then I saw Ons and Rebels and I thought, Oh, wonderful, how great. I hadn't thought about this, I had no one's mentioned the Mitfords, and I was and I have read it, but years and years ago, and so I was researching it, and then I was thinking I am so curious what your take is, because from the outside, I read it and thought, oh, I see M in this. There is such, (laughs) um, it's to me all about the permission to have had great privilege or comfort or ease and education. And then with that, not being trammeled in by it, but, but saying now who, now who do I choose to be out in the world? And the sort of permission given by family to be clearly these fam you know clearly the Mitford family were just like well go go be a fascist then go be a you know what I mean it wasn't sort of much in the way of it and I all of those things I think of in uh, in connection with you I really do I think how you have you are utterly unselfpitying and always the first to make an amazing anecdote out of anything no matter how fucking traumatic it might have been <laughs> and it is your ability to sort of spin straw into gold and I think that but there's also a sort of spirit of adventure that you have. That, that Well, that's so sweet. God, it's gonna, that makes me feel very sort of touched. But I wish I've... I, I don't think I have it as in nearly such quantity as... as well, I don't believe... I don't... I mean, I'm not saying you went and fought the Spanish Civil War, but <laughs> I'm saying that a pioneering sense of sort of things are possible, and I can do that, and I'll take it on, and I won't have... 
judgment about it. I don't know. I just, I see it. I totally oh, see that's it. That's so nice. It's going, that's going to inspire me. I'm going to try to be more like that. I, I was <laughs> reading it again today and looking at this stuff, the way that she talks about America thinking, because I, when I read it, I didn't know I was going to end up in America. Or, sure. And so that bit I was reading again with fa- mm. total fascination and how they came here. They came here really to escape both of their families mm. and also to escape that awful time in England before the war began. And then the minute the war began, he, he joined the Air Force and went back and got killed but and they ended up you know there are such sweet photos of them sort of being you know barmen together in in Miami and she was uh, (laughs) selling dresses in some shop in New York and they were doing sort of odd jobs together and having this incredible adventure and and the way she talked about America, she then lived the rest of her life in America, even without him, and was friends with sort of Maya Angelou and um, wow. was a great liberal and wrote great books, The mm. American Way of Birth and The American Way of mm. Death, I think they're called about sort of just life here. <laughs> but, you know, the way she just talks about being in America and about the open of people here and the willing to like how you'll stop someone on the street and ask the way somewhere mm. in New York and they'll stand there and give you their opinion on the best app you know there are three different ways but they think that the best way is to go you know they'll, they'll engage in a way that's right. sort of so arresting and bemusing for someone mm. from England where mm. nobody ever talks to you like that no. that you encounter you know, people really talk to you here yeah. in a way that you don't ever experience there and also liberal culture here she found so refreshing because it was completely unpretentious in a way that it she didn't see in England where it was just people she they spent a, a, a while in Washington too and um she was saying you know these sort of liberal intellectuals in Washington they were just so kind of that they, they was they they were so happy to be with them because they were so sort of earnest politically in a way that but but without being kind of grand and just sort of passionate and open and earnest and and she just found it a great relief and I was thinking the way she describes all these encounters and the way she just talks about it all does seem so unfettered by judgment um and so open and so curious and so up for an adventure and up for fun and mm. I got a yearn to be more like that you have that you have well, that in space that's so sweet but um it is it is it's an amazing book in the beginning again I was looking at today the description of of the house this house that they all grew up in and and this room that these girls would hang out in and that literally carved into one of the window panes is or the the window sills in the upstairs drawing room is on the one side a um, swastika, a fascist swastika, and on the other side a hammer and sickle, and that was Amazing. unity and and Jessica. And, Jessica. and how wow. I mean, it's just such a moment in crazy right? history, yeah. and it really gives you the whole beginning of the of the Second World War and the appeasement that was going on, and all these upper classes. I mean, everybody was into Hitler, mm. and you know there were lots of people were mad sure. about Hitler, even though Romilly was delivering all these you know, articles and stuff, there was really, there was knowledge of what was going on and what yeah. he was doing to the Jews in Germany. Um, but uh, people were just blind to it because yeah. they thought Hitler was a good thing yeah. at the time. I mean, it's amazing. It is. And yes, it's not somehow given the political climate that we're currently in. It feels less amazing. Um, let's talk, we're 
run out of time about your last book, the River Cafe Cookbook. Um, I'm guessing you mean the first one, the very original one, which was, I think, 1996. Oh, my God. Is it 1996? I think so, which is written by Ruth Rogers and Rose Gray. So I'm just going to quickly say that I was so thrilled to see this. I'm so glad you put a cookbook. I chose a cookbook. (laughs) Did you? One of my five. Yeah. What was your cookbook? Mine was a teeny one from when I was little that I used to cook. I couldn't even remember the title. (laughs) But I cooked from it when I was six till I was about 16 or something. (laughs) But you introduced me to the River Cafe. We got, you had talked about it when we were in Australia and then I think we all went for lunch there. I think it's a sort of reunion lunch. We all went back there when we got back from Australia and um, it's a beloved place that I actually completely associate with you as well. So I was so thrilled to see it on your list. <laughs> Tell me why you picked it. Well, so I was a waitress at the River Cafe. Oh, when I was, I think I When I was that, about, yes. um, between, I can't remember what year. I can't remember whether it was, I think it was when I came back from Russia. It was either when I came back from Russia before I started university or when I went, just before I went to Russia on my year out. So I was only there for two or three months. And I was the world's worst waitress, as Ruth Rogers will corroborate. <laughs> I would literally put plates down on the table. And it was, even then, it was pretty expensive. Like, it was, it was like, yeah. you know, a proper... Properly, yeah, no, yeah, that was a posh restaurant. Yeah, yeah. 90 quid for mm-hmm. two for lunch, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. But Ruth and Rose were so sort of great and relaxed, and they'd get all their friends' kids to come and sort of waitress there. But most of them were pretty good at it. I mean, mm. I was just hopeless. I would literally put down a plate. I remember putting down a plate. So there was a plate of meat and a plate of fish and the meat had the lemon on it by mistake and I put these plates down on the table that were like you know 40 quid a and I went oh my god so sorry picked up the lemon from the meat dish and put it on the fish dish and sort of ambled off and then got told that they had to give them a free lunch oh contaminated god, it um, and I was always having to sort of pay the bill for people's suits that I'd spilt the sort of olive oil oh, on no. their tie and things like that but and I can remember it was in the days the very first beginning of cell phones of mobile phones and people these businessmen would go out to the car park and call up to order their lunch well I remember that happening once isn't that funny really to show off about their mobile phone oh, yeah they'd call up from the car park to order their bre- uh, their um, puddings oh funny. anyway the, um, it was it, the, the, the restaurant is in Ruth Rogers is married to the architect Richard Rogers and um, and it was set up as a as a place for to just feed the architects in the in his mm. architectural offices that are there in in on the Fulham Palace off the Fulham Palace Road in in Hammersmith and uh, I was a waitress there and so I just have such fond memories of being a terrible waitress and uh, I learnt I think I mean I learnt how to cook from my mum but I learnt a lot from Rose mm. and Ruthie and what was great about the way that they 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 taught us to waitress was that we had to know about the food or we weren't allowed and really? you had to you had to really know about what it you was and you had to prepare the food as the waitresses so you had to come in really? at sort of 10 o'clock in the morning and shell peas or um, wow. peel potatoes mm-hmm. or whatever it was great parmesan mm-hmm. you know you had to spend uh, you had to do your 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 juice making making the food sure and, um, and so and it was all about I mean if you look at the recipes they're just all like three or four items basically yeah. they're just it's all about just incredibly Quality. simple delicious mm-hmm. perfect do you still cook from it all and the time? I still cook from it and I it's just I rem, I've cooked I can just remember the places all over the world that I've and I can remember the recipes like I cooked this these two um 
uh, the sea bass thing from it. I just know how to cook. I could just tell you how to cook it. And then, and I've done it. Um, it's like baked in the oven sea bass with sort of fennel and lemon and nothing very much. But and then the chocolate nemesis oh, cake and the really pear and almond tart. Yes, I could just make that for you right could now. You really? Yeah, and I am. Um, and I've cooked these things for from so it's from my days at university from sort of friends from from Oxford just sitting in my little flat wow. all the way up until sort of a week ago Food I've cooked these yeah. these this food and it just yeah. reminds me of being a really young girl I can remember meeting Alessandro's mum and dad for the first time at the River Cafe my husband really um you, you know they they came to England to visit him while we were doing the film that we met on and uh Love Slavers Lost Love Slavers Lost yeah. and we took them to dinner at the River Cafe I remember driving them in my uh uh, BMW 2002, my bright orange, uh, 1970s BMW. I remember BMW. it. I remember and my it. my father-in-law said, you need a tetanus shot to get into this car. Because <laughs> they were literally sort of, just sort of sandwiches moulding on the floor. <laughs> that sounds like my car now. My car looks like two homeless people have died in it. It's just terrifying. Anyway, yeah, so it was, that was a real, it, that place and my mum and dad I think of being there and mm. they had they all my mum and dad in the in the well in the height of Thatcher organised this thing called the 20th of June Society um, which was um, sort of a slightly sort of ridiculous uh, gathering of liberal sort of left-wing intellectual types mm. uh, to, to come and sort of try to plot the overthrow of Mrs. Thatcher. <laughs> and they would have they their meetings at the, meetings ro- at at the, the River, River Cafe. Yeah. Oh, I'd join just for that. You see, I'm just outing myself as someone who will completely sell their side for a roast chicken. Exactly. I would have totally got on the battleship for a roast chicken. <laughs> um, I have a few follow-up questions I'm going to ask you two of them because okay. then we can go and get dinner yes because um, I'm hungry now that we've talked urgent. now that we've talked about roast chicken it's all over <laughs> what is the last book that you threw across the room either figuratively or not I mean do you not finish books or do you finish oh them? I you never know? finish books you don't right? <laughs> but what was the last one that you just I can't was remember so the last time I actually finished a book Mm. Can you think? No, you don't. Don't worry. I might have to spot. come back to you can it. Come back to it. I'll tell you. Is there a book that you expected to like but didn't, or a book that you liked that you thought you'd hate? Either way. Yes, I liked. I thought I'd hate that my struggle that Carl. Oh um, yes, Carl Ove. Yeah, Nausgaard. Yes. I I didn't think I'd like it. I don't know why. I think it was from the picture on the yeah. front. You see, oh, I thought he was he was the sexiest man alive. I knew he was very sexy, but I was like, why is that right. going to make me like this book? And also, it just seemed like it was going to be so sort of navel gazing, which it was which in it a way, is, but in the best way. Yeah, I really loved it. I did, did you think, read the first? Have you read all of them? Or just no, the I've only one? read one. Yeah, I've got to read all of them. But I um, I've I, I've just been reading a brilliant article he's written about Russia, actually. Oh, I mean, really? Yeah, in is the, he in the New York? Time. It's in the New York Times, but it was it was in it weeks ago. So oh, I I'll go look it up. Yeah, it's he's really him. clever. Yeah, he is. What's his story? So he's, he's just, just he's just this extraordinary Norwegian. Well, he was a novelist before, and then he just decided to go into this sort of memoir thing, this Proustian, this you know, um, 
and I've read all of them because I got into them when Jakey was born and I would sit breastfeeding my son with the Kindle propped on Jakey's head and paying <laughs> absolutely no attention to my son and paying all the attention to my Norwegian lover which was what I called him <laughs> and I would say I was just going to go and sit with my Norwegian lover now and I would read Carl Nausgaard till you know the, the, the fucking small hours of the night 4 so have you read them all? I have, yeah, and I, I, I just, I just love, I just love him, and I don't. I'm useless because I don't remember anything, and I don't retain. It. I've just been sitting here marveling at your amazing memory and your ability to reel out names and places. And oh my all god, of that. no, I don't have a no, memory. No, you do, you do, you do. I've just listened to you. I couldn't name. I can barely name you my first boyfriend, and you tell me <laughs> amazing story about your first boyfriend. Anyway, but um, so what I'm saying is, I have read all four, and with a gun to my head, I couldn't tell you what happens. Other no. than that, you. What's wonderful is that they're not chronological, and you dip in and out. So one is entirely sort of adolescence, and one is him becoming a substitute teacher who then becomes a teacher and then one is him as a parent but they're not chronological in the way that they were published so you you oh, fold right, right, back right, right. into his parents right. and you think oh yes I remember oh yeah they divorced didn't they oh yeah and you sort of feel your way back in it's just an amazing ability he has to create tension out yes, of the everyday. Yes, nothing, I know, this, you, you, I know. This is sort of, you I can't know. help but turn the page I know. in case I know. in case he dies or something. I and yet there's 400 pages ahead of you, so you know he doesn't yeah. die, or the baby doesn't die, or something. He's just, I think he's extraordinary. Well, is that funny that, that it's really hard to pull off that kind of confessional stuff? It's amazing. Where you're still, it's still mysterious yeah. when somebody's just telling you everything. Yeah. Like, cause you're, you're, and you still want to know. Yeah. And, and yeah, anyway, yeah, he's really cool. Last I, question. I really liked him. Yeah, go on. You can only take one book to your desert island. What is it? Um, it can be one of these or it can be another one. I think it would be Great Expectations. I really do. I just think it's there's so much in it and it just makes me think so much of so many parts of my life and I I just... Yeah, I think it'd be great expectation. It's really my dad. It would just that's that's just take him with you. Yeah, I'll take yeah. him with me and have him. And it goes into all sorts of areas that you know that my dad, you know that the the uh, life of being my dad's daughter has taken me into, like the law and mm. you know. But also, yeah, just that thing of identity and who you are and who you are in the world and what that means and how who you are in the world. And what it means to be who you are in the world changes all the time. Yeah. And I just think it's con- kind of a constant source of something to think about mm. and feel strongly about. Mm. I think I could, I could, I would always feel strongly about that, mm. no matter how often I read it. Yeah. It's lovely. <laughs> em, thank you so much. This is such a treat to sit and talk to you about books. We never I do know, this. This I is glorious. What a treat for me. My thank thanks. Thanks so much for listening to this week's interview. If you like the show, please write us a review on iTunes on the website. It really makes a difference. Rate us, give us some stars, let your friends know, let your family know, tell everyone you can. Go to the website bookishwithsoniawalga.com if you want to find out about any of the books that you heard about. We list there not only the five favorites, but every single book that is referenced. You can also buy the books through the website and uh, we make a tiny, tiny little percentage of whatever you buy through the website. So if you are interested, please go ahead and click on that. 
You can find us on Facebook. We have a Bookish with Sonia Walger page. You can find us on Twitter with at Bookish Sonia or at SoniaWalger.com. And you could also email me through the info at bookishwithsoniawalga.com page. If you hit on contact, it'll just automatically pop up as an email there. So if you have any ideas for guests that you'd like to hear from or thoughts that you have about the show, please don't hesitate to share them there. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. Enjoy the show.